Hey everyone, you're listening to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast with fiction author and national security expert Natasha Bajma. Join me as I interview subject matter experts about weapons of mass destruction and emerging technologies and authors who write about them. We'll discuss the ethical, societal, and technical aspects of science and technology so that you can tell great stories and still get the details right. Welcome to episode number 17 of the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. My name is Natasha Bajma, aka WMD Girl on Twitter. I'm a fiction author, national security expert, and your host for this podcast. If you're interested in science and technology and reading good fiction, or want to write fiction based on technology, you're in the right place. The Authors of Mass Destruction podcast is proud to be part of the Authors on the Air global radio network. Check us out on www.authorsontheair.com. First off, a personal update. So I am recording this introduction from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, As a follow-up from my last episode, I have moved away from Washington, D.C., and I am now in between locations um, en route to Texas in just a couple of weeks. I actually had to drive 29 miles into the city uh, to record this um, because I'm staying out in the country where there is no internet, and that has been extremely challenging. But I am here for you today. I'm going to upload this episode before I go back into the sticks. So this week, I have two related headlines. Why HBO's Chernobyl Gets Nuclear So Wrong by Michael Schellenberg on www.fords.com on June 6th. And also, What HBO's Chernobyl Got Right and What It Got Terribly Wrong by Masha Gessen in The New Yorker on June 4. So for the past 10 years, I've taught a class about weapons of mass destruction in film, and I always remind my students that films and even documentaries based on fact are narratives created by writers and directors. And so I always ask them, what does the writer or director want you to think about this topic? Many of you probably have heard about the HBO miniseries Chernobyl, uh, featuring the story of the world's worst nuclear power plant accident, took place in the city of Pripyat, uh, Ukraine, which was then part of the Soviet Union. The entire population was forced to permanently evacuate after being exposed to toxic levels of radiation. But Soviet officials publicly downplayed the incident in the press. As a result, we still don't quite understand the effects of the fatal explosion, and there are many conflicting accounts about um, how many people were affected, etc. So what happened? The reactor fuel melted, uh, caused an explosion, sending plumes of radioactive material into the air. Radioactive dust then contaminated vegetation and the water supply in the region. Um, within the three months of the accident, about 32 people died of acute radiation sickness. Uh, in the series itself, um, there appear to be, I haven't seen it myself, I promise I will watch it, but there appear to be, based on the analysis that I've been reading, um, a lot of confusion about the consequences of a nuclear power plant meltdown and the effects of radiation coming out of uh, the general public consuming this series. Um, a couple of points that have been made in the articles I mentioned, that radiation is kind of conceived as um, as if it were contagious like a virus. And I guess in one episode, there is a reference to a megaton nuclear weapon um, in, re- in regards to, a, I guess, a secondary meltdown of a nuclear reactor, which is um, an exaggeration that isn't, uh, is so big that it's, it's really troubling. So I'm looking forward to watching it. Also, I heard that there was a helicopter crash that seemed that it was implied that it had something to do with the radiation, but it actually had nothing to do with that. 
So the writer, Craig Mazin, he's the Chernobyl, the writer of Chernobyl, he insisted in a tweet that the lesson of Chernobyl isn't that modern nuclear power is dangerous. The lesson is that lying, arrogance, and the suppression of criticism are dangerous. But in the end, it appears that millions of people have become terrified by nuclear power. And for fun, you can check out Google Trends before and after Chernobyl and look at um, what things people, what things are trending, nuclear power plants, nuclear meltdown, etc., so in the Forbes article, Schellenberg complains that Chernobyl gets nuclear all wrong. And in the New Yorker article, Masha highlights what Chernobyl got right, in particular, the depiction of Soviet culture at the time. But he argues that it, it fell short even uh, in the depiction of the Soviet system. So the question here is, does that matter? And um, I think it's interesting that so many people are watching this um, series and talking about it. And that says to me that there's a real role for stories about nuclear power, but also nuclear weapons. Um, but I, I think it's really um, troubling that some of the technical details were gotten wrong because it, it leads to problems today. Um, if the general public believes radiation to be contagious and they don't understand how to decontaminate themselves, that can lead to, to further uh, consequences. So let's get to my interview. Uh, this week I talked to Tara Drozdenko. She is the Managing Director of Nuclear Policy and Nonproliferation at the Outrider Foundation. In this episode, we delve into what makes a nuclear story compelling and what nuclear stories we think writers should tell today to have impact. Welcome to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. My name is Natasha Bajma. I'm your host for this podcast. Today, I'm with Tara Drozdenko. She is the Managing Director of the Nuclear Policy and Nonproliferation at Outrider Foundation. She has a PhD in physics and has also served in positions at the U.S. Department of Treasury and the U.S. Department of State, working on sanctions and counterterrorism. Tara, welcome to the show. Thank you. So I don't think I have to ask you why nuclear weapons since you studied physics, um, but what brought you to Washington, D.C. to become involved in policy? Well, so about half, I got a Ph.D. in physics, and about halfway through my program, I came to the sort of disheartening realization that I didn't want to be a physics professor. And, um, but I still had probably another three years to go to finish and I'd put three years in and, um, I decided to, you know, go ahead and finish it because I had invested so much time and, um, energy in it. But I really started sort of thinking at that point what I did want to do, um, as a career. And I, I had a, a really deep interest in international relations and policy and, um, so I wanted to try to take the science background that I had and um, find a career where I could apply it to policy. And so that was what brought me out to D.C. Um, was, you know, just after I graduated, trying to figure out a way to insert myself into the policy community there. Yeah, so you have what most of my colleagues and I are jealous of, actual technical expert expertise. Um, I pretend to be a nuclear expert, but at the end of the day, I am not a hard scientist. I'm a political scientist. So that's a great combination. I know a lot of people who have done that and done so very successfully. 
So now you've been at the Outrider Foundation for almost four years. Can you tell us a little bit about the foundation, why it was established, and what you guys focus on? Sure. So uh, the Outrider Foundation was um, established by a local family here in Madison, Wisconsin, which is where we are located. And um, they started it more than 20 years ago, but at the time it was just a very small charitable arm for the family and they they gave money to the Boys and Girls Club and the, the Women's Shelter and the Food Bank. Uh, and they did that for a number of years. Um, but then about five years ago, the founder decided that he wanted to shift the focus of the organization to these two existential threats that were really uh, of huge concern to him. And that was climate change and nuclear weapons. So he, um, transitioned the organization to an operating foundation, which means that um, rather than giving grants, we do the work ourselves. And he hired staff for the first time in 2015, and I came on board that year to manage the nuclear weapons mission area. And um, I have a colleague that does the climate change area, and we have some other staff that sort of uh, help support those areas. And, uh, that's, and that's what we've been doing for the last four years. That's awesome. So I saw your website, which um, remind the readers or listeners where the website is. It's uh, outrider.org. That's what I thought. I would just want to be sure. Um, I, your website is fantastic. Um, it's really slickly done and it's clear from your mission and also from the website that you are focused on using digital media to produce accessible information. So why, why was that decided? That was where you wanted to focus your efforts. Um, well, so that was, that was at the direction of our founder. I think he was really interested in trying to uh, create media that would be able to be consumed by a wide audience. The founder wanted a, a very slick website. He wanted it to be something that would be um, attractive to a wide audience and you know a lot of he wanted a lot of people to be able to see it and learn about these two issues uh, so that was the we did the focus um, on digital be at the direction of the founder and I think it was a smart move because um, you know we can reach all across the world with uh, with just a website so yeah well I 100% I agree I think you know we've probably chatted about this before um, if you're not in someone's feed right now, it's really difficult to get someone's attention. And there really is no better way than kind of quick stories or videos or something like that to raise awareness at this particular juncture. Yes, and we have a focus on visual storytelling. Um, we wanted the to be not as heavy on the text. While you know, we do have articles, but we also wanted to accompany that text um, with really good uh, visuals. And so we've chosen to use a lot of compelling photography in our storytelling. Yeah. And so basically I went through your website this morning and there's just a lot of great visuals as you suggested, but also a lot of interesting and um, catching stories. And I think you highlight some of the key nuclear weapons risks out in the world right now, Iran, North Korea, the situation between the US and Russia. But what I really loved about your website is you kind of talk to some of the less conventional um, nuclear risks, the ones that, that aren't being talked about. And um, what particularly drew my attention was your focus on accidents, errors, and explosions. 
And um, I think these um, provide, first of all, great, great fodder for stories for writers. But I think also when people learn about these situations, they're shocked. They, that we just don't hear about them very often. So I'm wondering, can you speak to some of those? You, you talk about you know, um, nuclear weapons being dropped from airplanes, melted in storage unit, fires, gone missing. Any, any of your favorite stories? I do have a favorite, um, and it's just because it's, it's local. Uh, so, you know, we're in Wisconsin, and um, back during the Cold War, I think it may have even been during the Cuban Missile Crisis, I can't quite remember, but um, in Minnesota, there was this guard at a base that he, he saw a figure climbing the fence, and um, he fired at it because he thought someone was trying to come over, and that set off an alarm. And the alarm uh, was wired incorrectly at one of the local bases here in, in Wisconsin, it was Volk Field. And so because of the incorrect wiring, it, um, it told the, um, the bombers that had nuclear weapons on them to take off uh, and to start flying. So they were on the runway about to go off and then it was discovered that this, this figure in Minnesota that had been shot at was just a bear climbing trying to climb the fence and uh so there was a staff member that had to chase down these airplanes in a truck and wave them off and tell them not to take off um just because this one alarm had been miswired so that's one of my favorites um and uh, clearly very distressing um and but there's so many of them which is also very disturbing just the, the volume of them um, and you can go on the website and you can see we've got this timeline that lists them out and you can, sometimes you can watch a video, sometimes you can look at a cool picture. Um, but yeah, there's just, there's just more than we could even talk about at this particular um, podcast. There's so many of them. Yeah. I mean, what, what's striking about these stories is that a single nuclear weapon can destroy and decimate one city, right? And um, anytime there's like a false alarm, like a bear climbing a fence that leads to potential increased nuclear risk, or um, some of my favorites are the dropped bomb stories. <laughs> because <laughs> here, literally, bombs are falling from the sky and running the risk of potential detonation. So I think my favorite one is the safety switch saves the day in North Carolina. And yeah, as I understand it, all of the redundant safety measures failed except for that last one, um, that the, the, the bomb came out of the plane and it was basically the bomb sensors assumed that it was supposed to detonate. And there was just one safety switch that prevented it from detonating over North Carolina or on the actually ground of North Carolina. Yeah, that's, that's my understanding of the incident as well. And you know, we would have taken out a city there in North Carolina if it had, um, if it had gone off. Um, <laughs> we no, luckily, I think the U.S. has smartly decided that they should not be flying nuclear bombs on airplanes round the clock like they used to uh, during the Cold War. So we don't have that situation anymore, and so we we don't run this risk of of an airplane crashing or. Uh, an accidental bomb drop like we did during the Cold War when we were flying these airplanes around with live weapons on them. Um, but I mean, in, in the very modern era, maybe a couple of years ago, accidentally we loaded uh, live weapons onto a plane 
it took off, it flew to another base and sat there on the tarmac unguarded with nuclear weapons on it for like 36 hours. <laughs> um, so this, you know, these really dangerous things are, happen with our nuclear weapons. Um, and as you pointed out, I mean, these are things we can't predict. These aren't, um, when, we, when you think about deterrence and trying to prevent nuclear war, they don't fit neatly into that theory of deterrence. Uh, and there is always this risk that we have with accidental um, detonation or stumbling into a nuclear war. Yeah, another category I think were false alarms. There were, um, I think it was in 1980 that there was a faulty chip that led to a false warning that we were going to be hit by several hundred Soviet nuclear missiles and it increased to a thousand or so. And the national security advisor was going to wake up the president to order a retaliatory attack all because of a computer chip. I think right. that's much more of a modern risk that we face. Right. And I think that actually happened twice in the period of a couple of days. <laughs> okay. Wow. And that's how they figured out that there was something very wrong going on because it happened more than once. I mean, we're in the digital age now. And so even though our command and control remain fairly antiquated, um, compared to today's uh, digital technology, we're about to modernize our command and control systems, right? Right. So <laughs> there might be, you know, you, you could run into another flaw like that that was unanticipated. You just don't know. Yeah. Not to mention supply chain risks, right? It could be potentially uh, intentional, although I don't see a nuclear weapon state um, wanting to confuse us in any way, shape, or form about uh, what what weapons have been launched or not launched. So. Um, but yeah, so the other kind of segment of stories that I was really fascinated with were the ones about the human costs of nuclear weapons. And I think, um, I, that's where I got kind of sucked in because I, I, I knew about some of them, obviously the testing, um, nuclear testing. Um, but I wasn't as aware of some of the ones about uranium mining and even the Pantex facility. Do you want to talk to some of those stories? Sure. Yeah. So I think that's one of the things when most people don't think about when we think about our nuclear weapons is that um, there's a risk to just building them. There's a risk to just having them. Um, and, and they cause harm to, to people. And as Americans, like we often do with a lot of things, we shift the risk uh, of, of um, building and manufacturing and maintaining those weapons to communities that have less wealth and less political power. And so what that means is that there's, there is sort of a system of oppression um, built into our um, nuclear weapon system. And most people don't really think about that. Um, so one of the things that I think is um, interesting to me about how our nuclear weapons uh, program developed was the impact it had on the Democratic Republic of the Congo in particular. So um, if, you, if you go all the way back to the, the genesis, the origin of nuclear weapons, it's World War II. Uh, we've got um, Einstein warning Roosevelt that the Germans might be developing this super weapon. 
and he better, you know, the U.S. better start um, getting on it. And, and so you, you have Roosevelt ordering um, the scientific community to start monitoring uranium. And uh, Einstein informs the president that the best source of uranium at the moment in the world is in the Belgian Congo, which is now the DRC. So when, um, when Hitler invades Belgium in 1940 and World War II is sort of underway, the U.S. panics a little bit, doesn't want uh, the Nazis to get access to that really good um, uranium. And so they uh, buy that, or they, well, they convince the Belgian company to store the uranium in, on Long Island. Um, and so in, in the process of that, you've gotten the U.S. sort of sucked into this colonial power that has been oppressing the people of the DRC for, uh, you know, a good 100 years. Well, no, probably like 70 years. Um, and it, it was really horrific at the time. You have these, uh, you know, uh, artisanal miners that are, you know, not provided with good uh, work equipment. They're not warned about the dangers of uranium mining, and yet they're doing it anyway. Um, and it just wasn't something people thought about back in the 1940s, but it doesn't really excuse it. So then, um, once the U.S. enters World War II, we buy even more uranium from uh, this Belgian company, and uh, they have the miners working these round-the-clock shifts to pack it up and get it to the U.S. They were probably exposed to like a year's worth of radiation within the period of two weeks. Nobody told them that, the, you know, what they were doing was dangerous. This mine and there has um, really contaminated the environment, increased cancer rates and birth defects. Um, and all of this is going on um, while the U.S. Is, is consumed with this very pressing national security concern of, of the, a Nazi superweapon and trying this race to build the bomb with the Nazis. Um, and so it, as it turns out, you know, of course, we know the end of the story. The U.S. built a bomb. The Nazis didn't. Uh, one of the reasons we got probably beat the uh, Nazis to a bomb is because of the quality of the uranium that we were getting from the Belgian Congo. Then, you know, uh, you've got the Cold War going on. And again, we don't want the Soviet Union to have access to this high quality uranium. And we want to protect this source of the mine. Um, <clears throat> when the Belgian Congo gets its independence from Belgium and becomes the DRC, um, the new prime minister, the first democratically elected prime minister of the country is um, not so, you know, he, he, he wants to renegotiate the contract. He's like not going to necessarily give the U.S. free reign like they had been given with the, um, from Belgium. So that worries the U.S. a little bit. And they, um, the Western powers convince this province that have the mind to secede from the country. And um, so then the new prime minister asked the Soviet Union for help dealing with this secession, which really freaks the U.S. out. And they decide that he needs to be assassinated. And so all in the, uh, the um, effort to protect this uranium source for the U.S. nuclear program and to keep the Soviet Union away from it, the U.S. has, has assassinated the first democratically elected leader of that country and then installs a dictator, um, Mobutu. And so as you see throughout, like as the history of the DRC unfolds, you see that sort of act of violence and that installation of a authoritarian leader really 
really wreck the possibilities for the DRC uh, <clears throat> to um, thrive. And, uh, you know, now you, they've had a, an election and they've got, um, prob you know, probably a democratically elected leader, but it, it took, you know, let's see, 50 years for that to happen. And the violence um, that, that goes on in that country is horrific. We've got um, terrorist groups in there, Boko Haram. Um, and, and so these decisions that we made from what we felt were really pressing national security issues end up giving us consequences down the line that we couldn't predict. And at the same time, um, we've pushed on another country and another people um, really violent <coughs> consequences. Um, so I've, I've kind of rambled about that a lot, but I think it's not independent from a lot of decisions that we have to make in terms of national security issues. Um, the world is, is not black and white a lot of the time, it's full of grays. And so sometimes we make these decisions because we feel like the national security issue is very pressing. But then 10, 20, 30 years later, the consequences of our decision come back to bite us. Wow. I mean, that's a story right there. Um, I, I'm, I didn't know that we had tried to get a part of the DRC to succeed and assassinate its leader, all to maintain our source to, you know, what's ironic is today there's just so much more uranium deposits. Like back then, that was like one of the highest quality known deposits. But it's just, I mean, that is a layered story. Um, and I, I think, you know, really provocative. And, and as, you, as you suggest, you know, when we start tinkering in the affairs of other countries and, you know, it, it leads to all sorts of unintended consequences. Um, wow, that's a great story. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry I rambled for so long. No, no, I'm just like, I'm reeling from it because, you know, I'm a storyteller. So I'm just thinking about how, you know, something fairly straightforward, we want access to uranium um, you know, to protect the United States against the threat of the Soviet Union and the things that we did um, or the decisions made to get access um, and how that all unfolded. It's just, it's, there are stories here, people. That, that's the, <laughs> the thing I take away from it. So in addition to like these really, you know, this really cool um, list of stories and timeline of stories on your website, You've been doing some really cool projects lately, super cool projects, like super critical. <laughs> and one of them is the bomb blast. And I'd like you to talk about, you know, where that idea came from and kind of how it has unfolded now and, and what, what, um, what authors can use it for. Sure. Yeah. So uh, some of your listeners might be familiar with NukeMap, which um, was developed by Alex Wallerstein. I think in 2012 is when he um, released that. Um, and it's a tool very similar to our bomb blast uh, tool um, that where you can go in and, and put a city and pick a, a yield for a weapon and detonate it and get some sort of sense of the casualties. Um, and we actually, we worked with Alex to take the underlying code that he had built for NukeMap and um, just rework it to make it a little bit more uh, user-friendly as a, in the interface so that if someone came to it, they had less choices that they had to make um, and it would be a little bit easier for them to use. So the way that our bomb blast uh, simulator works now, you go in and you uh, choose a city 
and there's a default weapon that gets um, selected, but after that detonation, you can play around with it. You can change the bomb, which has, they have different yields. You can um, ch choose whether you're gonna do an air blast or a ground burst. Um, and then you can see, you get a sense of some of the casualties. Um, and you'll also see on the map sort of the extent of the destruction. Uh, you'll get like a, a little circle that tells you sort of the radius of destruction. And if you want to learn more about each of those different circles of destruction, you can go in a little deeper and learn about the, um, the uh, shockwave and the heat radius and all that sort of stuff. So I think authors could probably, you know, go in there and play around with it a little bit and learn, like, if I dropped a bomb on Tokyo, like, you know, what would happen? Um, if it was just the size of the Hiroshima bomb, how would that differ from, like, a modern U.S. weapon? nowadays um so, so i was playing with it this morning and i dropped star bomba on washington dc and annihilated all of washington dc including baltimore i mean it's the czar bomba for for those who don't know was the largest megaton weapon thermonuclear weapon developed by the soviet union and uh when you go and play with that on bomb blast and you see the amount of area that would just be wiped like everyone within that area would be dead it's 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 absolutely horrific, um, and it, but it gives you a sense of this destructive power of nuclear weapons. And I kind of feel like there's, in the general public today, kind of a, a, a sense of apathy towards nuclear weapons. I think we're losing some of the fear and awe of how destructive these weapons are because we no longer live in the fear of the Cold War. We don't have those visual images of some of the films that were produced then. Is that your general sense? I think I think people don't want to think about it more than that they um, I think there's this maybe in the back of our brains this sort of protective thing that we do where like that's just too horrible to think about so I'm not going to think about it um, and part of and maybe part of that too is that nukes have been become a little bit a part of popular culture in terms of uh, post-apocalyptic uh, movies or even um, video games. And so um, you kind of consume that as media and then maybe it becomes um, easy to kind of ignore it as a reality. It seems like fiction in a way. Um, so I don't know, these are just theorizing. I, I definitely think people don't pay attention to nuclear weapons as a existential threat as much as they used to, certainly during the 80s, I think folks just either they don't know about it or they're more worried about other things like climate change, mm -hmm. which is certainly an, a very, I mean, we should be concerned about climate change. It's, it's going to have huge repercussions for humanity. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I hope that people can um, start to pay attention a little bit more to nuclear weapons because they haven't gone away over the last uh, 30 years since the Cold War, they're still around and still a big threat. Yeah, so I'm originally from Michigan and um, I started studying WMD a long, long time ago. And when I would go home um, on the holidays and my family would say, so how's your studies going? And I would start talking about nuclear and they would say, I, I, I don't want to talk about that. So I, I think your general <laughs> inclination is, you know, even though, you know, my family members wanted to know about my studies, they, they really didn't want to talk or think about these, these issues. And I, I think 
So I, I think we talked about this before about, you know, if we're going to tell stories about nuclear weapons to raise awareness in the public of their potential risk, we don't want to overwhelm people. So we need to pick stories that move people and make them feel like this is very important. But if you kind of, you know, uh, if you decimate a city like all of Washington, D.C. and Baltimore with a huge nuclear bomb, people aren't going to walk away from that with any sense of hope. Um, do you agree with that? I do agree with that. And I think that another factor for people is that they don't know what they can do to help or what they could even do to impact policies. I think they feel sort of resigned to the fact that we have nuclear weapons um, and that it's sort of the purview of the government and there's very little that they can do to uh, change anything. So they just don't want to think about it. Um, because there's nothing they feel like they could do. And I don't think that's true. I do think that average citizens have a lot that they can do when it comes to nuclear weapons issues, um, which we could certainly talk about more. But, um, but I also agree that um, when you tell people stories about nuclear weapons, you do want to give them a sense of hope that they could make a change uh, and, and not just sort of... Um, give them this overwhelming sense of the world's coming to an end. There's nothing I can do about it because then the, the logical human reaction to that is to just withdraw and turn and shut that part off and sort of compartmentalize it and go on with your life. Cause you feel like it's just too horrible to think about. Yeah. So let's, let's change the topic and talk specifically about stories and the kind of stories that we would like to see writers um, take on um, in that vein. So generally speaking, I think the nineties, when I think about the films that were made and the books that were um, written about nuclear weapons, it was kind of nuclear terrorism, thriller type stories. Um, in the eighties, we talked about the cold war you had day after, you know, you had kind of more, the Soviet Union and the U.S. kind of getting into some sort of nuclear exchange, but now we're in 2019. So what kind of stories do you think writers should tell today about nuclear weapons? Well, a lot of it may be historic, but there is one that's very recent, which was the, um, the false missile alert that happened in Hawaii. Um, is that a year ago now or more than that? I can't remember when exactly. Maybe a year ago. It doesn't feel that long ago. Yeah. Um, I think that there's probably a lot of human stories that could come out of that one event, that one, you know, 45 minute episode in Hawaii. Um, and there already have been some that come that came out. But I think it, it's, you know, it's so close in time um, to, you know, our present day that it, it could be really impactful for writers to talk about those stories. Uh, I mean, how would you just, most people are not confronted with, Oh my God, what, I only have half an hour to live. What do I do now? Do I try to pick my kid up from school? Do I try to call them and say, I love you one last time or, you know, just really um, that could, that could be really impactful. Um, I do think that there's a lot of stories we could tell historically that are super interesting, but haven't yet been told. So um, like I mentioned, the DRC one, the just sort of the decisions that we made during the cold war, where it was sort of like national security at all costs, uh, you know, no matter what we're doing, 
Uh, and that's, that wasn't, you know, just nuclear weapons. Of course, you know, we did all sorts of stuff in Latin America and everything like that. There's all sorts of stories that could be told about the Cold War and um, our decision-making on national security with that. Um, you know, and then there, there are stories about um, the American Southwest and uranium mining there with the Navajo and how uh, that's really impacted the Navajo community there very detrimentally. Um, I think with, with stories like that too, what the hard part is um, as an author, you don't want to be, go in there, swoop in, try to tell this story from, a, you know, an indigenous person's perspective and then leave. <laughs> um, so I think some of the struggle there is um, figuring out a way to be respectful of the culture and, uh, and involve um, the community in that storytelling. Because I think that does happen to the Navajo a lot where people show up, want to tell their story and then leave. Uh, and they're yeah. not really part of it. From the perspective of an author, though, too, there's there's challenges in not writing what you like. You, we need to write what we know, and unless you are from, you know, Na Native American um, culture, that's going to be a really tall order to really do it um, to do justice to that story. So I think the challenge is matching up a story about nuclear weapons with what you know. So for me. My inclination, of course, is to tell the kind of the big story, the, the thriller, right? The nuclear weapon goes off in a city kind of like the sum of all fears, just because that's, you know, what I know. Um, but I, I don't think those kind of stories are going to be, th those are so, people will watch that movie and not be affected by it because they've seen it so many times before. So I, that's why I think some of these more human stories would have a lot greater effect, but the amount of research that would take to get into a story about the DRC, for example, or um, the Native American story, um, I think that that's the big challenge. Um, what about, so I saw that there was some, um, something on your website about Nevada and the testing that went on there. That's a story that I think is a little bit more accessible because I mean, you know, Americans were affected that lived near the, the nuclear test site. Um, what were the effects of nuclear testing on that region? Yeah, so there were, um, so when the, the U.S. government chose the Nevada test site because of its sort of remote location in the desert, and also because typically the winds blew away from really large populated areas like Los Angeles and Las Vegas. Uh, but that meant that the winds blew um, towards the east, and there were still people living there <laughs> towards the east. And so that's why they're called Nevada test site downwinders, because there were populations that lived downwind of the Nevada test site. They weren't huge cities. They were uh, typically um, sort of um, agricultural and, and not very, you know, like uh, they weren't large populations, metropolises. But uh, there were a series of tests, uh, I forget what year it was, um, that because of the winds deposited large amounts of, of radiation and fallout on these populated areas. And so you have uh, just this dramatic increase in cancer rates. Basically, uh, every family has every family in there has in those areas has been affected by cancer. Uh, there's large, uh, like a spike in, in birth defects. 
Um, and so I think that also, yeah, that certainly could be an area where authors could um, tell a very human story about the impacts of atmospheric testing that the U.S. did um, on local communities. Um, and then there's this sort of chilling uh, um, thing that the test site manager wrote to the communities because, you know, they were a little worried about being impacted by the tests and he wrote them a letter and he said, you guys are, I can't remember the quote exactly, but you are in a very real sense, active participants in our country's nuclear test program. <laughs> and, um, you know, I want you to know that we, we, are, we carefully consider every test that we do and we only do them because national security um, <coughs> calls for it. And so that was meant to be some sort of comfort to these folks, but it didn't really change the situation for them. They were still getting fallout um, and it really kind of, I think, it illustrates this notion that we have communities in the, the U.S. that we are willing to sacrifice there, uh, for the sake of the rest of us. Um, the Navajo being one of them and also these Nevada test site downwinders. So, so it, it, it raises some of these philosophical questions about, you know, now, we obviously have national security concerns. We have to protect the American people. Sometimes that doesn't mean all the American people. <laughs> we mm -hmm. sacrifice some of them. Uh, and those communities that we sacrifice tend to be communities that have less wealth and less political power. Um, and we, you know, we wrestle with very real questions of national security. And uh, it's interesting to just sort of explore why we make the decisions that we make and whose safety we are really concerned with. No, I think you're absolutely right. I think, you know, one of the challenges with, of course, nuclear radiation is it probably took years before you started to see effects. Do you know how long after the testing we started to see an increased prevalence in cancer and other things? I, you know, I don't know that for sure. I know within the case of the Navajo that it took about 20 years for the cancer rates to double within that community. Um, so I would imagine it probably took a decade or more before mm -hmm. you really saw like the cancer rates start to increase. I think that that's probably the challenge, right? That it's, it's the, the effects of radiation are invisible until they're there. Right. And sometimes it takes a long time for them to emerge. And so it's easier in the short term to make decisions for national security when the effects are not in the short term. Um, and I think you're right that if it, pretty provocative stories could be told about some of these um, situations in the United States. So moving on to talk about your latest project before we close, um, you put out a really cool video, how to dismantle a bomb video. Um, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about why you wanted to talk about dismantling a bomb and you know, how, how I'm curious, how is the process of putting together such a video? Sure. Um, so I think part of it was we wanted to dis demystify this process for people because I think there's this sense that nuclear weapons are always going to be with us. And we wanted to sort of present a different like, view. Like you, we do know how to take them apart. We have done it with thousands of them over the, the decades. Um, and, so, and there is a very well-known process for that. Um, so part of that was, you know, trying to like let people know um, that maybe they have some misimpressions of it. 
doing the video. Um, so we hired a filmmaker to do it. Uh, and, um, she had, um, a colleague who did stop motion animation. So it's a stop motion film. Um, so from my end, most of my involvement was on the script and getting the timing for that down. Um, and so that was, uh, and we worked with some technical experts. Uh, there was a gentleman at Harvard, Sebastian Philippe, who helped us with some of the, you know, technical things about what happens when you're taking th certain things apart. I think the hardest part for it was, uh, for us was which things to include, because we only had about two minutes to explain the process for people. So we did leave a few things out. You know, there's, there's obviously wiring and all sorts of things. Um, it, so we left a few things out. There's like minor little parts of the missile that we didn't label. Um, so I think part of the process there was figuring out what is the most important thing to convey to people in how this dismantlement process goes. And it was a pretty fun project. Um, and I'm really happy with how it turned out. Yeah, it's great. So where, where can um, listeners find that video? So that's not up on our website at the moment. You'd have to go to YouTube or Vimeo, and we have an Outrider Foundation channel, and it would, on, it would be on the YouTube channel. It's also in our Facebook feed. Um, probably if you went to our Facebook page, you could see it in our videos. Okay, great. Um, one more time, your website for the listeners? Outrider.org. Well, Tara, thank you so much. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review. You can also support my time in producing the show with Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Natasha Bajma. For more information about the podcast, go to www.authorsofmassdestruction.com. See you next week.